Chapter Eight of The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Eight The Expedition of eighteen fifty seven. Scarcely was the business with the American government completed before Mr. Field was recalled to England. Once more upon the waves, he forgot the long delay and the vexatious opposition which he left behind, the fogs of Newfoundland and the denser fogs of Washington. He was bound for England, and there at least the work did not stand still. All winter long the wheels of the machinery had kept in motion. The cable was uncoiling its mighty folds to a length sufficient to span the Atlantic, and at last there was hope of victory. Although the United States government had seemed a little ungracious in its delay, it yet rendered, this year and the next, most important service. Already it had prepared the way, by the deep-sea soundings which was the first to take across the Atlantic. It now rendered an additional and substantial aid in lending to this enterprise the two finest ships in the American Navy, the Niagara and the Susquehanna. The former was built some dozen years before by George Steers, a name celebrated among our maritime architects as the constructor of the famous yacht America, that racehorse of the sea which had crossed the Atlantic and carried off the prize in the British Channel for the yachts of England, and was designed to be a model of naval architecture. She was the largest steam frigate in the world, exceeding in tonnage the heaviest line-of-battle ship in the English Navy, and yet so finely modeled that, propelled only by a screw, she could make ten or twelve miles an hour. Notwithstanding her bulk, she was intended to carry but twelve guns, being one of the first ships in our navy to substitute a few heavy Dahlgrens for half a dozen times as many fifty-six pounders. This was the beginning of that revolution in naval warfare, which was carried to such extent in the monitors and other ironclads introduced in our civil war. Each gun weighed fourteen tons, requiring a crew of twenty-five men to wield it, and through a shell of one hundred and thirty pounds a distance of three miles. One or two broadsides from such a deck would sink an old-fashioned seventy-four or even a ninety or hundred gun ship. But as the Niagara was now to go on an errand of peace, this formidable armament was not taken on board. She was built with what is known as a flush deck, clear from stem to stern, and being without her guns, was left free for the most peaceful burden that she was to bear. When the orders were received from Washington, she was lying at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, but began immediately to prepare for expedition. Bulkheads were knocked down, above and below, to make room for the huge monster of the deep that was to be coiled within her sides. These preparations occupied four or five weeks. On the 22nd of April she made a trial trip down the bay, and two days after sailed for England in command of Captain William L. Hudson, one of the oldest and best officers in our navy, who, to his past services to his country, was now to add another in the expeditions of this and the following year. He had with him as chief engineer Mr. William E. Everett, whose mechanical genius proved so important in constructing the paying-out machinery. Besides the regular ship's crew, no one was received on board except Mr. Field and Professor Morse, who went as the electrician of the Newfoundland Company, and two officers of the Russian Navy, Captain Schwartz and Lieutenant Kolomnin, who were permitted by our government, as an act of national courtesy, to go out to witness the great experiment. The regulations of the Navy did not admit correspondence of the press, but Professor Morse was permitted to take a secretary, and chose Mr. Mulally, who reported for the New York Herald, 
and who had thus an opportunity to witness all the preparations on land and sea, and to furnish those minute and detailed accounts of the several expeditions which contribute some important chapters in the history of this enterprise. The Niagara arrived out of the 14th of May, and cast anchor off Gray's End, about 25 miles below London. As it was the first time, at least for many years, that an American ship of war had appeared in the Thames, this fact, with her fine proportions and the object for which she came for, attracted a crowd of visitors. Every day, from morning to night, a fleet of boats was around her, and men and women thronged over her sides. Everybody was welcome. All were received with the utmost courtesy, and allowed access to all parts of the ship. Among these were many visitors of distinction. Here came Lady Franklin to thank the generous nation that had sent two expeditions to recover her husband, lost amid polar seas. She was, of course, the object of general attention and respectful sympathy. While lying in the Thames, the Agamemnon, that was to take the other half of the cable, passed up the river. This was a historical ship, having borne the flag of the British Admiral at the bombardment of Sebastopol, and distinguished herself by steaming up within a few hundred yards of the guns of the fortress. After passing through the fires of that terrible day, she was justly an object of pride to Britons, whose hearts swelled as they saw this oak-ribbed leviathan, that had come out of the gates, out of the jaws of hell, now preparing to take part in achievements of peace not less glorious than those of war. She was under command of Captain Nodal of the Royal Navy. As the Agamemnon came up the river in grand style, she recognized the Niagara lying off Gravesend, and manning her yards gave her a succession of those English hurrahs so stirring to the blood when heard on land or sea, to which our tars replied with lusty American cheers. It was pleasant to observe from this time the hearty good will that existed between the officers and crews of the two ships, who in their exertions for the common object were animated only by a generous rivalry. A few days after, the Niagara was joined by the Susquehanna, Captain Sands, which had been ordered from the Mediterranean to take part also in the expedition. She was a fit companion ship, being the largest side-wheel steamer in our navy, as the other was the largest propeller. Both together they were the worthy representatives of the American Navy. When the Niagara arrived in the Thames, it was supposed she was to take on board her half of the cable from the manufactory of Glass, Elliot & Co. at Greenwich, but on account of her great length it was difficult to bring her up alongside the wharf in front of the works. This was therefore left to the Agamemnon, while the Niagara was ordered around to Liverpool to take the other half from the works of Newell & Co. at Birkenhead, opposite that city. Accordingly, she left Gray's End on the 5th of June, and reached Portsmouth the next day, where she remained a fortnight, to have some further alterations to fit her to receive the cable. Although she had been already pretty well scooped out, fore and aft, the cry was still for room. Officers had to shift for themselves, as their quarters were swept away to make a wider berth for their iron guest. But all submitted with excellent grace. Like true sailors, they took it gaily, as if they were only clearing the decks for battle. Among other alterations for safety was a framework or cage of iron, which was put over the stern of the ship to keep the cable from getting entangled in the screw. As soon as these were completed, the Niagara left for Liverpool, and on the 22nd of June cast anchor in the Mersey. Here she attracted as much attention as in the Thames, being crowded with visitors during the week, and on Sundays, when none were received on board, the river boats sought to gratify public curiosity by sailing round her. The officers of the ship were objects of constant hospitality, both from private citizens and from the public authorities. The mayor of Liverpool gave them a dinner, 
the Chamber of Commerce another, while the Americans in Liverpool entertained them on the 4th of July, the first public celebration of our national anniversary ever had in that city. But while these festivities were kept up on shore, hard work was done on board the ship. To coil 1,300 miles of cable was an immense undertaking, yet it was all done by the sailors themselves. No compulsion was used, and none was needed. No sooner was there a call for volunteers than men stepped forward in great numbers than could be employed. Out of these were chosen 120 stalwart fellows, who were divided into two gangs of 60 men, and each gang into watches of 30, which relieved each other, and all went to work with such enthusiasm that in three weeks the Herculean task was completed. The event was celebrated by a final dinner given by the shareholders of the Atlantic Telegraph Company in Liverpool, to Captain Hudson and Captain Sands of the Susquehanna, whose arrival in the Mersey enabled them to extend their hospitalities to the officers of both ships. While the Niagara was thus doing her part, the same scene was repeated on board the Agamemnon, which was still lying in the Thames. There the work was completed about the same day, and the occasion duly honored by a scene as unique as it was beautiful, says the London Times of July 24th. All the details connected with the manufacture and stowage of the cable are now completed, and the conclusion of the arduous labor was celebrated yesterday with high festivity and rejoicing. All the artisans who had been engaged upon the great work with their wives and families, a large party of the officers, with the sailors from the Agamemnon, and the number of distinguished scientific visitors, were entertained upon this occasion at a kind of fete champetre at Belvedere House, the seat of Sir Culling Eardley, near Erith. The festival was held in the beautiful park which had been obligingly opened by Sir Culling Eardley for the purpose. Although in no way personally interested in the project, the Honourable Baronet has all along evinced the liveliest sympathy with the undertaking, and himself proposed to have the completion of the work celebrated in his picturesque surroundings. The manufacturers, fired with generous emulation, erected spacious tents on the lawn, and provided a magnificent banquet for their guests, and a substantial one for the sailors of the Agamemnon, and the artificers who had been employed in the construction of the cable. By an admirable arrangement, the guests were accommodated at a vast semicircular table, which ran round the whole pavilion, while the sailors and workmen sat at a number of long tables, arranged at right angles with the cord, so that the general effect was that all dined together, while at the same time sufficient distinction was preserved to satisfy the most fastidious. The three centre tables were occupied by the crew of the Agamemnon, a fine, actively body of young men, who paid the greatest attention to the speeches, and drank all the toasts with an admirable punctuality, at least so long as their three pints of beer per man lasted. But we regret to add that, what with the heat of the day and the enthusiasm of Jack and the cause of science, the mugs were all empty long before the chairman's list of toasts had been gone through. Next in interest to the sailors were the workmen and their wives and babies, all being permitted to assist at the great occasion. The latter, it is true, sometimes squalled in an affectionate peroration, but rather improved the effect than otherwise, and the presence of these little ones only marked the genuine good feeling of the employers, who had thus invited not only their workmen, but their workmen's families to the feast. It was a momentary return to the old patriarchal times, and every one present seemed delighted with experiment. Speeches were made by Sir Culling Earley, by Mr. Cardwell, of the House of Commons, Mr. Brooking, one of the directors, by Professor Morse, and others. Mr. Field read a letter from President Buchanan, saying that he should feel honored if the first message should be one from Queen Victoria to himself, and that he 
would endeavor to answer it in a spirit and manner becoming a great occasion. Thus, laboring and feasting being ended, the Niagara and the Susquehanna left Liverpool the latter part of July and steamed down St. George's Channel to Queenstown, which was to be the rendezvous of the telegraphic squadron, where they were joined by the Agamemnon and the Leopard, which was to be her consort. The former, as she entered the harbor, came to anchor about a third of a mile from the Niagara. The presence of the two ships which had the cable on board gave an opportunity which the electricians had decided to test its integrity. Accordingly, one end of each cable was carried to the opposite ship, and so joined as to form a continuous length of 2,500 miles, both ends of which were on board the Agamemnon. One end was then connected with the apparatus for transmitting the electric current, and on a sensitive galvanometer being attached to the other end, the whole cable was tested from end to end and found to be perfect. These experiments were continued for two days with the same result. This inspired fresh hopes for the success of the expedition, and in high spirits they bore away for the harbor of Valentia. It had been for some time a matter of discussion where they should begin to lay the cable, whether from the coast of Ireland or in mid-ocean, the two ships making the junction there and dropping it to the bottom of the sea, and then parting, one to the east and the other to the west, till they landed their ends on the opposite shores of the Atlantic. This was the plan adopted by the following year, and which finally proved successful. It was the one preferred by the engineers now, but the electricians favored the other course, and their counsel prevailed. It was therefore decided to submerge the whole cable in a continuous line from Valentia Bay to Newfoundland. The Niagara was to lay the first half from Ireland to the middle of the Atlantic. The end would then be joined to the other half on board the Agamemnon, which would take it on the coast of Newfoundland. During the whole process, the four vessels were to remain together and give whatever assistance was required. While it was being laid down, messages were to be sent back to Valentia, reporting each day of progress. As might be supposed, the mustering of such a fleet of ships, and the busy note of preparation which had been heard for weeks, produced a great sensation in this remote part of Ireland. The people from far and near gathered on the hills and looked on in silent wonder. To add to the dignity of the occasion, the Lord Lieutenant came down from Dublin to witness the departure of the expedition. No one could have been better fitted to represent his own country, and to command audience from ours. The Earl of Carlisle, better known among us as Lord Morpeth, had travelled in the United States a few years before, and showed himself one of the most intelligent and liberal foreigners that had visited America. No representative in England could on that day have stood upon the shores of Ireland, and stretched out his hand to his kindred beyond the sea, with more assurance that his greeting would be the warmly responded to. And never did one speak more aptly words of wisdom and of peace. We read them still with admiration for their beauty and their eloquence, and with an interest more tender but more sad, that this great and good man, the true friend of his own country and of ours, has gone to his grave. To quote his own words is the best tribute to his memory, and will do more than any eulogy to keep it fresh and green in the hearts of Americans. On his arrival at Valentia, he was entertained by the Knight of Kerry at one of those public breakfasts so much in fashion in England, at which in response to a toast in his honor, after making his personal acknowledgments, he said, I believe as your worthy chairman has already hinted, that I am probably the first lieutenant of Ireland who ever appeared upon this lovely strand. At all events, no lord lieutenant could have come amongst you on an occasion like the present. Amidst all the pride and stirring hopes which cluster around the work of this week, we ought still to remember that we must speak with the modesty of those who begin, and not of those who close an experiment. And it behooves us to remember that the pathway to great achievements has frequently to be hewn out amidst risks and difficulties. 
and that preliminary failure is even the law and condition of the ultimate success. Therefore, whatever disappointments may possibly be in store, I must yet insinuate to you that in a cause like this it would be criminal to feel discouragement. In the very design and endeavor to establish the Atlantic Telegraph, there is almost enough of glory. It is true, if it be only an attempt, there would not be quite enough of profit. I hope that will come, too, but there is enough of public spirit, of love for science, for our country, for the human race, almost to suffice in themselves. However, upon this rocky frontland of Ireland, at all events to-day, we will presume upon success. We are about, either by this sundown or by tomorrow's dawn, to establish a new material link between the old world and the new. Moral links there have been, links of race, links of commerce, links of friendship, links of literature, links of glory. But this, our new link, instead of superseding and supplanting the old ones, is to give a life and an intensity which they never had before. Highly as I value the reputations of those who have conceived and those who have contributed to carry out this bright design, and I wish that so many of them had not been unavoidably prevented from being amongst us at this moment. Footnote A. Mr. Field was detained by illness at Valentia, and several of the ships had not arrived. End footnote. Highly as I estimate their reputation, yet I do not compliment them with the idea that they are to efface or dim the glory of that Columbus who, when the large vessels in the harbor of Cork yesterday weighed their anchors, did so on that very day three hundred and sixty-five years ago. It would have been called in Hebrew, writ a year of years, and set sail upon his glorious enterprise of discovery. They, I say, will not dim or efface his glory, but they are now giving the last finish and consummation to his work. Hitherto the inhabitants of the two worlds have associated, perhaps in the chilling atmosphere of distance with each other, a sort of bowing distance, but now we can be hand to hand, grasp to grasp, pulse to pulse, the link which is now to connect us, like the insect in the immortal couplet of our poet, while exquisitely fine, feels at each thread and lives along the line. And we may feel, gentlemen of Ireland, of England, and of America, that we may take our stand here upon the extreme, rocky edge of our beloved Ireland. We may, as it were, leave in our rear behind us the wars, the strifes, and the bloodshed of the elder Europe, and of the elder Asia, and we may pledge ourselves, weak as our agency may be, imperfect as our powers may be, inadequate in strict diplomatic form, as our credentials may be, yet, in the face of the unparalleled circumstances of the place and the hour, in the immediate neighborhood of the mighty vessels whose appearance may be beautiful upon the waters, even as are the feet upon the mountains of those who preach the gospel of peace, as an homage due to that serene science which often affords higher and holier lessons of harmony and good will than the wayward passions of man are always apt to learn. In the face and in the strength of such circumstances, let us pledge ourselves to eternal peace between the old world and the new. While these greetings were exchanged on shore, only the smaller vessels of the squadron had arrived. But in a few hours the great hulls of the Niagara and the Agamemnon, followed by the Leopard and the Susquehanna, were seen in the horizon, and soon they all cast anchor in the bay. As the sun went down in the west, shining still on the other hemisphere which they were going to seek, its last rays fell on an expedition more suggestive and hopeful than any since that of Columbus from the shores of Spain, and upon navigators not unworthy to be his followers. The whole squadron was now assembled, and made gallant array. They were present in the little harbor of Valentia, seven ships, the stately Niagara, which was to lay the half of the cable from Ireland, 
and her consort, the Susquehanna, riding by her side, while floating the flag of England where the Agamemnon, which was appointed to lay the cable on the American side, and her consort, the Leopard. Beside these high-deck ships of war, the steamer Advice had come round to give, not merely advice, but lusty help in landing the cable to Valentia, and the little steamer, willing mind, with a zeal worthy of her name, was flying back and forth between ship and shore, lending a hand wherever there was work to be done. And the Cyclops, under the experienced command of Captain Damon, who had made the deep-sea soundings across the Atlantic only the month before, here joined the squadron to lead the way across the deep. This made five English ships with but two American. But to keep up our part, there were two more steamers on the other side of the sea, the Arctic, under Lieutenant Berryman, and the company's steamer Victoria, to watch for the coming of the fleet off the coast of Newfoundland, and help in landing the cable on the shores of the New World. It was now Tuesday evening, the 4th of August, too late to undertake the landing that night, but preparations were at once begun for it the next morning. Said the correspondent of the Liverpool Post, The ships were visited in the course of the evening by the directors, and others interested in the great undertaking and arrangements were immediately commenced on board the Niagara for paying out the shore rope for conveyance to the mainland. These arrangements were fully perfected by Wednesday morning, but for some hours the state of the weather rendered it doubtful whether operations would be safely proceeded with. Toward the afternoon, the breeze calmed down, and at two o'clock it was decided that an effort should be made to land the cable at once. The process of uncoiling it into the small boats commenced at half-past two, and the scene at this period was grand and exciting in the highest degree. Valentia Bay was studded with innumerable small craft, decked with their gayest bunting. Small boats flitted hither and thither, their occupants cheering enthusiastically as the work successfully progressed. The cable boats were managed by the sailors of the Niagara and the Susquehanna, and it was a well-designed complement, and indicative of the future fraternizations of the nations, that the shore rope was arranged to be presented, at this side the Atlantic, to the representative of the Queen, by the officers and men of the United States Navy, and that at the other side the British officers and sailors should make a similar presentation to the President of the Great Republic. From the mainland the operations were watched with intense interest. For several hours the Lord Lieutenant stood on the beach, surrounded by his staff and the directors of the railway and telegraph companies, waiting the arrival of the cable, and when at length the American sailors jumped through the surge with the hawser to which it was attached, His Excellency was among the first to lay hold of it and pull it lustily to the shore. Indeed, everyone present seemed desirous of having a hand in the great work, and never before, perhaps, were there so many willing assistants at the long pull, the strong pull, and the pull altogether. At half-past seven o'clock the cable was hauled on shore, and formal presentation was made of it to the Lord Lieutenant by Captain Pennock of the Niagara, His Excellency expressing a hope that the work so well begun would be carried to a satisfactory completion. The wire having been secured to a house on the beach, the Reverend Mr. Day of Kenmore advanced and offered the following prayer. O eternal Lord God, who alone spreadest out the heavens, and rulest the raging of the sea, who hath compassed the water with bounds, till day and night come to an end, and whom the winds and the sea obey, look down in mercy, we beseech thee, upon us thy servants, who now approach the throne of grace, and let our prayer ascend before thee with acceptance. Thou hast commanded and encouraged us in all our ways to acknowledge thee, and to commit our works to thee, and thou hast graciously promised to direct our paths, and to prosper our handiwork. 
We desire now to look up to thee, and believe that without thy help and blessing nothing can prosper or succeed. We humbly commit this work, and all who are engaged in it, to thy care and guidance. Let it please thee to grant us, thy servants, wisdom and power, to complete what we have been led by thy providence to undertake, that being begun and carried on in the spirit of prayer and in independence upon thee, it may tend to thy glory and to the good of all nations by promoting the increase of unity, peace, and concord. Overrule, we pray thee, every obstacle, and remove every difficulty which would prevent us from succeeding in this important undertaking. Control the winds and the sea by thy almighty power, and grant us such favorable weather that we may be enabled to lay the cable safely and effectually. And may thy hand of power and mercy be so acknowledged by all, that the language of every heart may be, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, that so thy name may be hallowed and magnified in us and by us. Finally, we beseech thee to implant within us a spirit of humanity and childlike dependence upon thee, and teach us to feel as well as to say, If the Lord will, we shall do this or that. Hear us, O Lord, and answer us our petitions, according to thy precious promise, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. The Lord Lieutenant then spoke once more, words that amid such a scene and at such an hour sank into all our hearts. My American, English, and Irish friends, I feel at such a moment as this that no language of mine can be becoming except that of prayer and praise. However, it is allowable to any human lips, though they have not been specially qualified for the office, to raise the ascription of glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, good will to men. That, I believe, is the spirit in which this great work has been undertaken, and it is this reflection that encourages me to feel confident hopes in its final success. I believe that the great work, now so happily begun, will accomplish many great and noble purposes of trade, of national policy, and of empire. But there is only one view in which I will present it to those whom I have had the pleasure to address. You are aware, you must know, some of you, from your own experience, that many of your dear friends and near relatives have left their native land to receive hospitable shelter in America. Well, then, I do not expect that all of you can understand the wondrous mechanisms by which this great undertaking is to be carried on, but this I think you all of you understand. If you wish to communicate some piece of intelligence straight away to your relatives across the wide world of waters, if you wish to tell those whom you know it would interest in their hearts of hearts of a birth, or a marriage, or alas, a death, among you, the little cord which we have now hauled up to the shore will import that tidings quicker than the flash of the lightning. Let us indeed hope, let us pray that the hopes of those who have set on foot this great design may be rewarded by its entire success, and let us hope further that this Atlantic cable will, in all future time, serve as an emblem of that strong cord of love which I trust will always unite the British lands to the great continent of America. And you will join me in my fervent wish that the giver of all good, who has enabled some of his servants to discern so much of the working of the mighty laws by which he fills the universe, will further so bless this wonderful work as to make it even more to serve the high purpose of the good of man, and tend to his great glory. And now, all my friends, as there can be no project or undertaking which ought not to receive the approbation and applause of the people, will you join with me in giving three hearty cheers for it? loud cheering. Three cheers are not enough for me. They are what we give on common occasions, and as it is, 
for the success of the Atlantic Telegraph Cable, I must have at least one dozen cheers. Loud and protracted cheering. Mr. Brooking, the chairman of the executive committee of the Atlantic Telegraph Company, then expressed the thanks, which all felt to the Lord Lieutenant for his presence on that occasion. Then there were loud calls for Mr. Field. He could only answer, I have no words to express the feelings which fill my heart tonight. It beats with love and affection for every man, woman, and child who hears me. I may say, however, that if ever at the other side of the water is now before us, any one of you shall present him at my door and say that he took hand or part, even by an approving smile, in our work here today. He shall have a true American welcome. I cannot bind myself to more, and shall merely say, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Thus closed this most interesting scene. The Lord Lieutenant was obliged to return at once to the capital. He therefore left and posted that night to Killarney, and the next day returned by special train to Dublin, leaving the ships to complete the work so happily begun. End of Part 1 of Chapter 8 of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph Recording by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net